Welcome to the Free Birth Podcast, a supportive space for people who are learning, exploring, and celebrating their autonomous choices in childbirth. Together, we'll unpack truths, share personal stories, and claim our ability to birth freely and intuitively. Here's your host, Emily Saldea. craving a community of like-minded women? Do you feel like an outsider in your family or your community? Well, I may have the place for you. We have a Free Birth Society private online community that's full of radical and wild women just like you. If you resonate with the topics that we explore on this podcast and want to belong in a circle of women who support each other in the self-exploration of free birth and wild mothering, come join us. You can apply online at our website, freebirthsociety.com. It's where myself and my team are hanging out these days, and we would love to get to know you. All right, friends, this is the episode you have been waiting for. I sit down this week with the smartest woman I know and one of my dearest friends, Yolanda Clark. Today, we are diving into some of the cornerstones of the industrialized prenatal care model, the gestational diabetes test, the GBS test, ultrasound technology, and navigating RH factor. I'm so excited today. We are uh, providing a long-awaited episode. Uh, we're going to be covering um, a couple different topics we're going to get into, and I have my darling, Yolanda Clark, with us today. Hey! <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> here. Um, and so I do just want to say at the top of this that we are going to be diving into gestational diabetes, GBS, ultrasound technology, and Rogam. Um, or RH negative. Um, and so with that, I just want to say that we are not medical professionals. Uh, we are not giving medical advice. We are women with brains that hold opinions and some criticism uh, that are offering some musings on these topics. So our entire platform and message is rooted in you holding your own agency to make your own decisions and think for yourself. So we fundamentally trust you to know what is best for you and your baby, and we are just here to offer some perspective. Anything you want to say, Yo? It's true. Don't take our advice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't take just our have advice. Thoughts. Well, actually, we don't even have advice. We, we don't have even no have advice. advice. It's we not have... advice. I should not have said that. It's, it's not, not advice. And it's so just random. It's just yeah. random musings uh, <laughs> that happen to be uh, life changing for some people, myself. <laughs> so, you know, with that, I just also want to uh, plug that Yolanda has uh, completed an epic feat and has finished writing. Um, uh, a life's work, really, a book that is going to be coming out at some point in the future. Um, and so this is kind of an intention, too, to just give everyone who's new to her a little taste of her genius um, and what will, um, you know, what will be held in the book. This is just a little, little, little taste. 
You're going to cut the genius part, right? Nope. <laughs> Everyone knows. <laughs> I can say it, not you. Um, okay. Yeah. So with, with that, let's, let's dive into, I want to start with gestational diabetes. And um, yeah, where do you, where do you want to kick off? If someone is, you know, brand new to um, the concept that there could be anything other than a forced glucose test and, you know, being, being assessed and then having that uh, completely determine uh, whether they will be induced or not, or whether they'll be risked out or not. Um, where do we want to start? Oh my goodness. So gestational diabetes doesn't exist. It's not a thing in my world. Um, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you either have diabetes or you don't. So, you know, as a pregnant woman. Um, so yes, while there are, you know, a small number of women who probably, who, who, who may become truly insulin resistant during pregnancy, those women tend to have the precursors to actual diabetes. So gestational diabetes is not anything. It's not um, a disease. It's not a disease. Um, so diabetes and gestational diabetes are, are, are different completely. So diabetes is, is not the same thing as the reality that, you know, some women during pregnancy have slightly elevated blood sugar levels. This is normal. You know, that's not harmful. It's completely normal for our bodies to you know register higher blood sugar levels during pregnancy. Um, this is by design. Uh, and then there are also some women who would probably do well to you know, modify their diets a little bit during pregnancy in order to better manage their blood sugar. But again, it's not a disease. So mm -hmm. the whole rigmarole of you know fasting and drinking that horrifying um, toxic chemical, drink, yeah, ridden glucola. It's 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 disgusting. Um, you know that whole thing that that ritual really. And it's it's a ritual of. Um, the industrial obstetric system, it's totally counterproductive, and it is really a, 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 an, a, a an attempt to you know, manufacture this disease mm. that's called gestational diabetes, which is really just a set of symptoms. Right. Um, it's again not really a thing. So it's not a disease. It's not a disease. So what 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 that that term gestational diabetes does is it really serves to fabricate this entire population of women who are supposedly at risk, mm -hmm. right? So women whose bodies are pathologized for no reason other than for the benefit of the obstetric system that you know, requires willing or subdued patients in order to really validate its existence. <laughs> and this we need, is not we need that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, we, we know this, right? Um, yeah. But but actually, fascinatingly, I have a little, I have a quote, I want to look it up. Um, it's really not news. So there's an obstetrics manual, actually. I, I did make a note of this. Just give me one second. Um, an obstetrics manual, um, obstetrics, mind you right? So this is a medical manual, um, and it was published in 1989, I think. And there's this quote from the manual that reads, gestational diabetes is a diagnosis in search of a disease. So this is what doctors, obstetricians were saying in 1989. So it just kind of illustrates a little bit of, you know, how things have shifted backwards, really. Um, 
And this concept of, you know, this, this fabrication of symptoms to, to fit this disease model is really confirmed by obstetrician Michel Audin as well. I'm a huge fan of Audin's. Um, you know, he's one of the only male researchers or male. He is the expert. only male. <laughs> the only male birth expert that I, I'll, I'll even allow that term to be yeah. on him. Birth expert. Um, but I, and the reason that I can tolerate him at all is because he's one of the only men that I'm aware of who's had anything to do with birth who's actually come to the correct conclusion that, you know, men have no place at all in the birth room. So I respect him for that. But anyway, Adele basically says that same thing, which is gestational diabetes is just just a complete fabrication. Like the placenta's job is to elevate blood sugar. Like that's, that's one of the things that it does. So again, it's totally normal for a pregnant woman's blood sugar to be elevated. But, you know, the vast majority of women who do test positive for gestational diabetes, which again, just means that our blood sugar reading would be at a certain, you know, arbitrary level according to these like dumb charts. And that's another thing too, the, the, um, the, 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 the guidelines for what constitutes gestational mm-hmm. diabetes are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, but anyone with even a cursory understanding of diabetes, blood sugar issues should know that, um, you know, the optimal diet for lowering blood sugar is to focus on protein, um, you know, reduce carbohydrates. So we don't want to eliminate carbs by any stretch, but we want to be selective about the kinds of carbohydrates that a pregnant woman might consume. Um, and this is something that uh, the, the treatment for most women who are diagnosed with this pretend fake disease of gestational diabetes is simply to modify their diet and to exercise more. So the entire structure of what constitutes gestational diabetes in the obstetric system makes no sense at all, right? Um, but that said, you know, in the hospital system too, where I live anyway, um, most women who are diagnosed with this fake made-up disease, GD, are still routinely told to consume a low-fat, high-carb diet, which couldn't be more wrong anyway. That's so weird. And yet it's so, so weird. So like none of it makes any sense. Just absolutely none of it makes any sense. And, you know. Well, it does yeah. in keeping with, you know, proving that <laughs> women are broken and let's keep them down and let's medicalize their bodies. And, you know, it, t- it makes perfect sense for what we know the agenda of the obstetrical model is. Exactly, exactly. And it is one of those, you know, it, it, this is one of the, the aspects of, of the system that is just self-perpetuating, right? It just serves to validate its own existence. So, um, you know, the fact that so many women consent to, consent to consuming this poisonous liquid in order to be diagnosed with this issue is just so, it's so crazy. So um, I love um, my, my dear friend, midwife Mary Lou Singleton's analogy. So she equates testing for gestational diabetes with giving women, pregnant women, the cigarette test. So, you know, how can we really be sure that pregnant women don't tolerate cigarette smoke well? So we could actually lock them in a broom closet for, you know, a a few hours and force them to smoke 16 cigarettes in a row. Um, And if they come out coughing and choking and feeling like hell, then, you know, obviously they have pregnancy nicotine disease, right? I mean, it's very, very similar, actually. It makes about as much sense. And so the system is giving these women high sugar, toxic drinks, and then testing to see how their body responded to that gross ass drink. 
Yeah. And we're supposed to be really surprised when quite a lot of women don't respond very well right. and then they're pathologized, but there's really nothing we can do other than just tell them not to eat garbage. And, and I, you know, love, I love, I love the, the alternative. I hear so many women say, Oh, you know, my doctor gave me an option. He had me eat a bag of jelly beans. <gasps> it's like, it's so the same fucking thing. So depressing. And we, and, and, you know, even in the context of free birth too, I mean, that's our zone. We hear this all the time, like women who are planning to have these beautiful, you know, organic spontaneous pregnancies and births, but they're going to go and get the gestational diabetes test. Like it just doesn't compute for me at all. It, it makes absolutely no sense. So, you know, uh, and again, I really want to emphasize this, that there are women who truly do have issues with insulin resistance, which often means that they have diabetes um, or so that, that they will yeah. develop, you know, diabetes at some point in the future. It's very rare, but this presents with symptoms too. I mean, it's, it's not like a woman who actually does have latent diabetes is going to feel a hundred percent great and totally fine. And then like, it just, these things don't occur out of nowhere, you know? Um, so, you know, some of those symptoms include excessive thirst, you know, excessive, like really excessive urination. I'm peeing all the time, but I'm confident I'm fine. You know, and just feeling bad and headaches and, and you know, issues like that, infections that, that persist. Um, so, you know, the overall point is that within the system, if we stop overdiagnosing women, if we stop standardizing these treatments and diagnostics that women receive as though we're cattle, we might actually have more resources to actually respond to issues when they do come up, you know, if they do come up. So, you know, it just, to my mind, and this is what I've you know, talked about with so many women over the years, instead of going and having anything to do with that, that test, act as if you already have gestational diabetes um, and just take care of yourself because that is the treatment 95% of the time. Um, you know, eat real food, avoid junk, focus on getting ample protein, you know, fresh foods, don't limit your salt intake. Um, it's very important during pregnancy. Um, and, you know, we go into much more detail um, on all of this in, in our course and in my book coming up. And yeah, because that's, like that's, that. you know, a lot of women ask me when I do the Q and A's on Instagram or I get emails of, you know, I want to do my own care, but with my last pregnancy, I had GD. And so what do I do with this pregnancy? Um, and I mean, you kind of just answered it, but I just wanted to kind of, you know, bring that into this conversation because it's, it's, uh, it, it, getting that test and being diagnosed either way is not the only option. No. And for women who have had that experience and who want to then, you know, have a, a free birth or a home birth or, you know, a, a, a birth outside of the system, I would in that situation really be looking very deeply at what that diagnosis really meant. And, you know, how, how did that actually affect my experience? Um, and, you know, another, this is, you know, we could talk about this for a lot longer, but another issue around the whole gestational diabetes thing is that, you know, women who are diagnosed with gestational diabetes, who then have babies who are, you know, 10 pounds, one ounce, those babies are often automatically kept in the NICU um, because they're, you know, at risk. And I mean, that's just, it's such a tragic outcome and it's so unnecessary. And again, it, it, it has to do with, with the standardization of, of, of women's care and, and the pathologization of our bodies really. That's Well, and that's, that's, you know, we were just talking about this yesterday that we, we do these birth, you know, debriefs with women all the time and how often I hear women say, 
um, you know, I was induced with my previous birth because I had gestational diabetes and my doctor told me if I wasn't induced, um, I would kill my baby. And mm-hmm. so it is an impossible, that's, that's an impossible thing to hear. Um, and, you know, and I hope anyone hearing, hearing this who has had that experience knows that, um, of course you got the induction. You are not to blame for then having done the thing when they pulled the dead baby card um, to prevent it. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. we're here to, to offer the perspective that um, perhaps um, there's more to the story. Mm-hmm. Than just mm-hmm. than just justifying induction, which only serves the system and that doctor. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Okay, anything else on on the mythical disease that's not a um, disease of GD? I don't know. It's just it's it just gets it's a lot. I mean, and I yeah, and like you said, we go we go way more into this in in our course, obviously, and of course your book coming up, and and I think you know one of the the wisest pieces, you know, to take away of what you just said is act like you already have it. And the response to that is to eat, um, eat correctly, you know, eat healthy as best as you can with high proteins and low carbs and lots of fresh, wonderful food, a salad every day, if you have access to it, um, obviously not eating boxes of donuts, you know, every single day, um, as that won't serve, um, your sugar levels, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, you know, this isn't that complicated. Um, and in this is, and I love that in our course, you open up the chapter with some, something like, um, G gestational diabetes is, is one of the most, um, misogynistic procedures in the, in the industrialized, you know, system of birth. And I love it because it's so true because it's so, um, infantilizing to act like we need to be tested for our blood sugars because we can't be, uh, responsible for our own diets and for our own health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Definitely. And, you know, we're, we're all so entrenched in the system that I think it's hard for individual women. I've been through this myself too, to kind of, to, to individualize our own experiences. Like it's hard to sort of believe that it's actually possible to proceed through our pregnancies, mm-hmm. um, taking responsibility for ourselves, but also seeing our own experiences as individual ones and, mm-hmm. and, and, and not to sort of funnel ourselves into those, um, you know, categories. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's just a little nutshell around GD. We have more of that in the course, but let's move on to the in infamous GBS. Mm, GBS. Oh my goodness. GBS is another racket. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, you know, it's a racket for a number of reasons, but you know, first of all, I really want to preface all this by saying that GBS disease in babies can be very, very serious. It can be fatal. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to make a distinction between the racket that is GBS testing mm-hmm. and how GBS is treated and approached within the industrial system versus the very real and, you know, sometimes tragic risks, albeit quite tiny, of GBS disease in infants itself. So, you know, that's really um, what's at the core of these issues fundamentally is that there's very little relationship between those serious and scary and real risks of GBS disease in newborns and the manner in which women are coerced, quite frankly, um, and again, you know, funneled into really counterproductive and harmful diagnostic approaches to the issue. So for those who aren't aware, GBS stands for Group B 
streptococcus and uh, group B strep is a bacteria that is actually present in the digestive systems of up to 40% of the population at a given time. So, um, you know, it's, it's basically a normal part of our physiology of our, our, our gut bacteria. Um, and it's only really a potential problem, potential problem, if it becomes imbalanced. Um, so if there's an overgrowth of this, of this bacteria. And of course, we're really just starting to understand the role of bacteria in our bodies. But, um, you know, it's really very important to, to know that group B strep is not inherently dangerous in and of itself. Um, so in North America... And, and just to point out, of course it's not, because if at any given time, a third to almost a half of us have it, of course it's not inherently dangerous, right? That wouldn't right. make logical sense. It's just, it's, it, yeah, it just doesn't, it's not. Um, however, that said, in North America, pretty much every single pregnant woman in the system, and even those without, you know, outside of the system, we'll talk about that in a minute, is effectively compelled to accept the GBS test. And I say effectively compelled because, of course, we're sold this rhetoric of informed consent, but what that tends to mean in practice is that women are informed of what we are expected to consent to, right? Right, right, right. Um, Big difference. And then we're badgered and shamed and threatened until we consent. <laughs> and I, I'd like to point out here that when a woman with a home birth midwife, a licensed home birth midwife, um, declines the GBS test, she's often met with, okay, but if we transfer for any reason, this the hospital will have to then assume you have it. If we can't show up with a negative, right? So coercion to get the test because you're so Mm -hmm. likely to transfer. And so if we show up with no test, you will be treated and your baby will be treated um, as a positive. And therefore you will have, you know, prophylactic antibiotics and your baby will be observed in the NICU. So what is a woman going to say to that? Well, of course I'm going to take the test for the chance at a negative. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, if that's not, I mean, to my mind, that's, that's, that's criminal. It's not even, I I just, I don't understand how anyone can not see that as, 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 as the, it's just, it's. Well, I think, and I think midwives um, think that they are being uh, protective of their clients to let them know. It's, it's it's so much worse. Yeah. Actually, it's so much worse when a midwife is backing that kind of approach because it's so manipulative and it's so abusive. It's truly abusive. I mean, this is gaslighting to an extreme degree um, because midwifery is sold as yeah, exactly. you know, woman-centered and and just all of that nonsense. It's, it's, it's very unfortunate. And I feel for midwives in the system as well. You know, there's lots of issues there. But, yeah. uh, Conversation for another but, day. No, it's, okay. it's, it's, so it's GBS. not good. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah. Uh, so the test itself is hugely problematic. So it consists of a swab done to the vagina and anus, which is, it's just, it's not something I could personally have done to me under any context. Uh, <laughs> it, it's done at 36, around 36, 38 weeks gestation. But what's interesting about the test, apart from how gross it is, um, is that it, 
interestingly, it's not even offered in many European countries. So that's highly indicative of, of the usefulness of it all, right? Um, but more importantly, the results of the test can change from one day to, a to the next. Um, and this, again, is because, you know, a large minority of human beings just have the bacteria in our systems. Um, and believe it or not, our bodies are not machines. Our bodies are dynamic, you know, changing organisms that respond to the environment in delicate and, uh, you know, de delicate and, and, and highly sensitive and calibrated ways. So a woman might have the GBS test um, register as positive on mm -hmm. Tuesday and then on Thursday it's negative. So, you know, at the core, the test itself is just kind of arbitrary and meaningless. Um, and once and you get a positive, you can't be retested in most places. Or so they, they you, decided, decided that this you're, the, yeah, yeah, you're, once you're positive, you're positive. So if you get a positive at 36 weeks, it literally doesn't matter if you to, do to the obstetricians, to the people who to are the working in CNMs, yeah. Once yeah. A, once a positive, then you're positive and it will be treated as positive with GBS, even if you don't have it at yeah. the time of your birth. Because yeah, exactly. there isn't a test yet, you know, that you can get when you go into the hospital and have a turnaround time of an hour and and find out, you know, not that I'm I'm advocating for that, but just there isn't a test that is relevant. Um, that exists that can be for in birth to have an accurate idea right. if it's present or not. Exactly. But I also think that women are not, I think a lot of women don't understand that simply having a slight overgrowth of this bacteria in your system, it does not mean right. that your baby will be affected. Right. And even babies who, who babies themselves who end up um, uh, colonized by GBS, that doesn't then mean that your baby will become sick. So there's so many mm -hmm. layers to how risk is calculated in this in this case, right? Um, that 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 I think a lot of medical professionals don't actually understand as well. Um, there's so much fear that goes into you know how these systems are created, um, and and I think that fear gets compounded and compounded. And, and, and people don't really understand what the actual statistical risks are, which are very, very small. Um, also, this is really important too. There are no studies that can possibly be done in the context of women right. who are giving birth outside the system. So we actually have no idea what the real risks are to women who are giving birth at home. My completely anecdotal uneducated opinion is that the risks are far lower because we're in our own environment, because we don't have the burden of so many other, um, you know, just we're surrounded by disease. So, you know, our, our immune systems are far more protected in our own homes. So I think that that's important and that's never factored into the conversation. And, um, and not to mention that when babies are given the antibiotics, there's a shocking percentage of babies that are dying from the antibiotics. I was just going to bring that up. And that's so, so important. So, so no first of that. all, no one has ever told that because antibiotics are this panacea, right? So first of all, this is, this is essential to understand. There are, there are numerous studies that actually show that in most cases, the antibiotics are not actually effective. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they don't work. Mm -hmm. They don't even it's just work. It's like a ritual. It's a ritual. And then as you, as you just said, um, there are actually very significant risks to 
subjecting our babies to these antibiotics as well. Um, so it just, the whole issue is really complicated, but also um, when you start to unravel these threads and, and kind of dig into these layers of, of propaganda, really, mm-hmm. you start to sort of realize that um, we're not really being told the truth about about this whole thing. And, and um, like with so many things with, with industrialized birth, if it actually was a magical cure that was rendering amazing outcomes, we wouldn't be having this conversation, mm-hmm. you know, it isn't, you know, and that it is not saving all these babies. And in fact, there are many studies that are showing it's harming babies, you Definitely. know, so it, and it's it, used as a weapon right. against women to force women to comply to, you know, shame us into, into uh, complying with, with all I, kinds I heard of a, I heard a, quote yesterday on a health podcast that uh, the guy said, um, Western medicine is really, really good at killing things and that that's where their genius lies. So antibiotics, you know, um, he, he had like parasites in his brain from living in the Amazon for a while. And he had like holes in his heart's front, front heart from some of the plant medicine he ingested. And so he was like, well, first I went to the Western medicine because they're really good at killing things. So I got everything killed and then I rebuilt my body with plant medicine. And it really just struck, struck me, you know, and stuck with me was like, yes, Western medicine is really good at killing things. And there is a time and place for that. Parasites are a great example. Um, mm-hmm. Severe infection where you could die, grateful. You know, yes, there's a time and place for some of, of that. Um, but to give every single woman this test to, to then um, justify antibiotics in labor every four hours for the entire process of labor and then to continue, you know, often antibiotics in the baby um, or, you know, NICU observation is so fucking ludicrous. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's just, it's, it's quite silly. I mean, I'm pregnant now. I have never been tested for, it wouldn't even cross my mind. Swab. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and it's in a similar sense to, to the issue of, of gestational diabetes, um, you know, it's not as though I'm, 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 I'm very proactive, you know, um, about my gut health in general. So, you know, I do everything I can to maintain, you know, excellent, um, you know, bacterial balance. Um, and I also know how my birth process might impact on the risks of GBS to my newborn. And I know what to look for in my newborn in terms of signs of potential infection. Right. You know, that, that's where I wanted to go next. So, so those are really important, right? And so we, we go into lots of detail about all that stuff in our course. So it's not as though, again, we're just dismissing this, you know, the risks of, of, of these issues entirely at all. No. Um, in fact, I am very confident at this point in my, in my life that uh, what I'm doing um, and what so many of the women that I've worked with are doing is probably objectively far more proactive, far safer even possibly than um, all of this nonsense that happens in hospitals and under the care of midwives who, you know, themselves are, uh, you know, forced into really, um, you know, delivering all of this nonsense. I think a lot of them know it's nonsense too. And Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, yeah. Part of the game. So, so just quickly to wrap up GBS, then, um, if someone is having a wild pregnancy, uh, is there anything, 
helpful. Not like we're not going to get into like how to have healthy gut flora in this episode. Like that's something in our course. You can learn about that in a thousand different ways online. Um, but is there anything we want to leave people with, with GBS around, um, you know, of course, worst case scenario, your baby is born, not yours, like objective baby is born with GBS and is, um, has the disease of GBS in the, in the, in the newborn. Um, what are some signs? What are some symptoms that someone could be alert to? Honestly, it's, it's, it's pretty rare. I've never encountered it in, in, in my experience. Um, but a baby that seems unwell, um, should seek, you know, a, a mother should, should seek medical attention if she feels moved to, um, you know, most of the babies that I've encountered, um, have been very healthy after a, you know, whole healthy pregnancy and a physiological birth at home. Um, you know, we live in North America and, you know, we're dealing with women who comparatively have excellent nutrition and, you know, hopefully good support systems. And, you know, I haven't seen many sick babies, um, babies who are unwell, who need medical attention should, should, that, that, that should happen. So yeah, it's not really terribly, um, ambiguous, honestly, it's really not. And again, you know, you were, you were, I I was wondering where you're going to go with that. And I was, you know, I thought maybe you were going to ask, you know, what, what do you do about a baby who's been colonized with GBS? And I mean, I, perhaps I've encountered many babies who have GBS colonization. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're going to become ill, right? Um, well, and so I think again, that's... if you have a sick baby, then your baby needs to be, you know, helped, but Supported, yeah. uh, it's very, very rare. So what we're doing is we're, we're, we're zapping everyone all across the board. We're, we're treating all of these women and all of these babies with antibiotics that mm. probably are probably statistically is causing far more problems than if we were simply to, as, as, as 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 is the case in Europe, most Euro- European countries, simply, um, you know, have, women have their babies, and and we're we're observant. You know, there are certain situations, possibly, you know, babies who, um, uh, uh, yeah, I should, this is important too. There there are certain situations where perhaps it might make sense, given the context to test for GBS. And it's far more effective to test GB, um, the GBS levels in, in urine as opposed to doing the swab test. The swab test is very iffy, as we talked about, but um, if GBS is present in the urine, then that can indicate a more um, persistent, persistent strain, right? So in some cases, um, a woman who goes into the birth process really, really early, premature baby, that might be a reason to test for GBS. Or a woman whose um, uh, you know, membranes are open for you know, several days and there might be some sign of infection. That might be a, a, a situation in which but testing... Are, are you yeah, saying to test sense. the mom's urine in labor or to test the baby once born? Like if a mom well, has open yeah. waters for multiple days, I mean, as far as I know in America, the test takes weeks to turn around. So how... Do we use that? I'm not sure if that's the case when it comes to the urine test. Honestly, I'm not an expert in this. I really don't know. Um, so I, I don't want to say anything for sure. But I, my, my general point here is that there, there may be certain circumstances under which the test would make sense. I, I, I really, I haven't encountered it. In my experience, it's so rare um, that, you know, it hasn't really been, hasn't been significant. And I have worked with many, you know, hundreds of women who have never, ever tested for it. 
And so who knows? They could have been colonized, like colonized. You know, it sounds so aggressive. I just think it's so rooted in this you know, women don't know what these things even are. And then, Mm. and then of course we're raised not to trust ourselves or know anything about the birth process or understand how intelligent our, you know, physiology of of pregnancy and labor is and all the things that happen in, in the mother baby dynamic that protect themselves. And so, you know, the women don't even usually understand that GBS is in the gut, you know, that it's not even in the, like on your vagina. No, it's a, it's a systemic thing, right? And that's another reason why, I mean, there, there's all the, oh, the HIPAA cleanse thing just mm-hmm. drives me crazy. So there's like this protocol where right. it's like, it's like an external cleanse yeah. of your vagina, but like, how stupid is that? Because it is, it is a gut issue. Well, so, the, this, the intelligence <laughs> to that, to my mind is get the avoiding neg- the system. Yeah. If you're in the system, <laughs> get a negative. If you feel like you have to get this GBS test for whatever, um, you know, uh, social reasons, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. get the negative. I mean, that's, that's the intelligence in my mind that I've seen women do it is, you know, they do the garlic and they do the hippoclins and all this stuff, because if they can just get the negative, they won't have to have forced, unnecessary, harmful antibiotics. And oh my God, can we just take a moment to really, really like feel how significantly damaging it is to begin your mothering and for your child to begin its life with all their gut flora wiped out by antibiotics and to have to restart. I mean, oh my God. And then they get thrush and the baby's in the NICU and there's just like, you know, the cascade of harm that happens from the antibiotics, the disruption of it in labor every four hours, being tethered mm-hmm. to the to the tower, you know, and then having the baby in NICU and not having your little one. And then the inevitable pass, pa- inevitable pacifiers and formula um, on top of the antibiotics, you know, I mean, the, the cascade exactly. of damage is so, yeah. so worth mentioning yeah. here. And, and, you know, <laughs> the, for, it just, it's for women who are planning a free birth. Again, we hear from so many of, of those women who, who have this lovely, wonderful idea that they're going to have, you know, a great birth at home without any medical intervention, but then they consider seeking out the GBS test because I think, again, a lot of women just don't, don't really understand what the implications are. And, and it's sold as, um, well, it's not invasive really, you know, like, yeah, there's something that you're going to stick a, put a little stick up your bum hole. Um, but they're not doing any, like, it's not even like the gestational diabetes test where you have to drink the poison. Right. Right. Um, but as you just pointed out, it does actually kick off this incredible, um, you know, inevitable, snowball effect of of interventions. And so what Yolanda and I focus on in pregnancy, do this if this feels good and if not that's great too, is healthy gut flora, right? Is building a healthy gut. And so when you are in balance and when you have healthy gut, um this becomes something that you don't have to worry about, right? It's yeah. actually very simple. If you have healthy gut that's in balance, because GBS is rooted in imbalance, if you have healthy gut that's balanced, you won't have to worry about this. So, you know, to to us, that's the kind of obvious obvious path there. If you are um, having a, a self managed life, absolutely. And you know, also this is important to to note too. Um, the mind and body are inextricably linked, and when we're 
full of anxiety and, you know, stressing about this, you know, relationship we have with um, the authorities out there who are, you know, imposing all of these, um, you know, arbitrary craziness things on us. Um, that's going to have an effect on how our internal mm-hmm. physiology is balanced or not. It really does. Um, you know, this is the the incredibly fascinating science of epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Like we're creating an energetic context in our bodies that is not conducive to balance mm-hmm. when we're constantly inserting ourselves into this system mm-hmm. that is designed to uh stress you out stress you out <laughs> right yeah. yeah pathologize you mm-hmm. medicalize you yeah exactly okay so a lot more to say on that but by our course or by her book we're moving on <laughs> we're moving on now we have ultrasound technology so this is a very hot topic um but really shouldn't be because there are just facts and facts sometimes make people really really triggered Ooh, wow so, ultrasound. Ultrasound. Yeah. yeah. So um, we're going to just see what we can do with 15 minutes. Where okay. Do you, where do you want to start? Well, you know, ultrasound is quite frankly, in my opinion, pretty much one of the most insidious yeah. examples of medical industrial coercion in and ritualiza- ritualization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, ultrasound also happens to be one of the most prominently employed technologies mm-hmm. within industrial obstetrics. It's just everywhere. It's, you know, one of the most significant pieces of industrial technological infrastructure within the obstetric system. Um, and none of that's an accident. You know, I really believe that ultrasound is kind of a, it's a dangerous scam. I know I probably sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's, it's not a conspiracy. It's just no, right it's out there in right the open. There, yeah. it's, it's right there, you know. Well, so maybe let's um, just say what, what it is. So, I mean, it's, it's basically the, the process of, of bouncing off, um, bouncing um, high-frequency sound. sound waves off of... Um, a, a mass. So that would be your baby. Um, and, you know, almost every single baby in utero in North America and really globally in most developed, in quotes, parts of the world are subjected to prenatal ultrasound, either in the form of the, the large ultrasound, ultrasound machines, or through the use of the ubiquitous Doppler, which is, you know, pulled out at every single prenatal appointment. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, ultrasound has replaced uh, so many hands-on interpersonal soft forms of prenatal care. So we have this collective impression that ultrasound is not only safe, but that it's necessary. You know, it's important for ensuring and confirming the health of our babies. But this just is not so. So it, this is not the case, according to you know the various studies that are done within the obstetric industrial mm-hmm. system by doctors. So you know just from the get-go, according to medicine's own research, ultrasound does not statistically improve outcomes. It just doesn't. So like that's that's the foundation of all of this, right? It doesn't actually do anything. So even if ultrasound were not harmful, which it is. And even if it did not pose any risks, which it does, it doesn't really do anything statistically. Now, this is a really difficult thing to wrap our minds around because anecdote and confirmation bias are always more impressive 
to individuals. So, you know, we all know someone who knows someone who had an ultrasound um, and that ultrasound picked up on, you know, some problem that the baby had. And that if it weren't for the ultrasound, you know, the family wouldn't have known about the problem and they wouldn't have been able to survive or do X, Y, Z or whatever. And that's fine. Um, uh, Like ultrasound does create a fuzzy black and white picture. It does. (laughs) But (laughs) what doctors interpret from that fuzzy black and white picture is highly, highly variable Mm -hmm. and very, very specious. So, you know, one of the sort of favorite ultrasound results that is just so important to so many people is placenta previa. Mm. And now, again, placenta, like real placenta previa, very, very serious and life-threatening. Absolutely. So I do not want to downplay that. However, so many women come back from their 20-week anatomy scan. Or 13. Or 13-week anatomy scan reporting that they've been diagnosed with partial placenta previa. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds terrifying, but what does it really mean? Because at 20 weeks gestation, your baby doesn't even weigh a pound yet, you know, and the placenta adheres to the wall of your uterus. And as our babies grow, our placentas expand, you know, the, the uterus expands upwards and the placenta uh, is displaced by that uh, expansion. Um, so it's just not possible to diagnose placenta previa at 20 weeks and partial placenta previa doesn't really mean anything at all. And often it's like low lying placenta. Well, who cares at 20 weeks? It doesn't matter. So, you know, the, the whole thing is just, it's, it's, you know, it's a label that's used to describe placentas that are somewhat close to the cervix. So it's such a massive fabrication, again, of a problem that doesn't exist and it's designed to frighten women. Yeah. And of course, you know, fear causes us all to grasp on to any source of apparent authority or protection. So what happens is that, you know, a sense of dependency on this technology is created. So, you know, well, gosh, if I have partial placenta previa, I guess I better come back for another ultrasound next week just to see if my placenta's moved, you know, and of course, placentas don't move, uteruses grow. Um, But it's just an example of how, to my mind, the primary purpose of ultrasound is not medical, it's psychological, right? It creates this illusion of being able to see into the womb. And this has the effect of trauma bonding women to the system. And there's such a fascinating parallel, I think, between the rise of ultrasound and the proliferation of screen-based digital culture that we're all obsessed with. So, um, you know, it's just- How many women say they they didn't feel a connection or their husband didn't feel a connection um, with their baby until they saw them on the screen? which, oh my God, oh my it's, God. That's a profound, profound, so uh, painful. It's, a, it's, it's terrifying and, and, so, and sad. So sad. we, you and I say a lot because we know this to be rooted in science that that ultrasound technology objectively damages healthy tissue. Right. So that's like, this is, this is the most upsetting and disturbing aspect of ultrasound um, is that apart from its absence of statistical significance, its failure to improve outcomes, including in the context of placenta previa, which is like trotted out as like, well, what about placenta previa? Um, It's the fact that ultrasound objectively and factually causes harm to mammalian cells and tissues. So there have been numerous animal studies 
done that has proven this. And here's a brainwave for everyone. We are mammals. What? So, <laughs> so when I share animal studies that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that yes, that wouldn't affect my baby. <laughs> ultrasound modifies and damages mammalian flesh mammalian organs mm. and this is dismissed as insignificant or irrelevant because we're not mice right Ugh, but, so i mean sad. to my mind really it sounds like tragic levels of cognitive dissonance and oh, yeah. to me so you know in in my book in our in our enormous course the complete complete guide to free birth and in the upcoming mini courses that we're going to be doing on um uh, you know prenatal care all this stuff of, <laughs> all this stuff um you know we really do dissect ultrasound and how it works, what it means. And then I think, again, you know, what we also do, and this is really, really important, you know, is to offer alternatives to ultrasound. And I don't mean like alternative technologies that can give you a fuzzy, weird looking black and white, you know, whatever. But I, I, I mean, I mean that contemporary culture has really created this void for pregnant women. Um, and I think that's at the heart too of our obsession, our cultural obsession with ultrasound. Um, you know, if ultrasound, which is the cornerstone of prenatal care, it's kind of like at the heart of what it has now become to feel mm-hmm. safe during pregnancy. If ultrasound isn't what we thought it was, then how do we navigate pregnancy and birth without it? I honestly think it's, terrifying for women Mm -hmm. to even consider going through a pregnancy without having an ultrasound. Well, because it represents peace of mind. Represents peace of mind. It represents safety. It represents just checking. Being in control. Yeah. Knowing what to expect. Right. And the number of women who, 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 who I hear uh, who who tell me who 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 post this on social media? You know, I had my twenty week anatomy scan and I'm so relieved because my baby's yeah, totally every, healthy. Yeah. You have no idea. You, you have no to. idea. Ultrasound misses so much. You were lied to. And the other thing is that ultrasound overdiagnoses so much and mm-hmm. fabricates so much. There are so yeah. many issues that are supposedly found via ultrasound that don't exist or that resolve themselves exactly, yeah. or that create, I mean, it just creates so And like you say in the problem. course, it's really easy to tell a woman via ultrasound that their baby's healthy because in the vast majority of babies, they are healthy. Most babies are healthy. Most so babies it's really, are yeah, healthy. It's not, it's so, not a stretch. Right. It's but this, stretch. exactly, this, this peace of mind, the delusion that it could be given um, and that it's that it's a almost a diagnosis given to you by somebody else who doesn't know you, who doesn't know your baby, who's seeing the exact same thing you're seeing on the screen. It looks like that to them too. Exactly. It's 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 actually such a, it's such a a, a a brick. It's such a rudimentary sort of like there's no delicacy to it. And that's another thing too. You know, um, Dopplers are are used to hear the baby's heartbeat. Nurses and doctors these days often don't know how to use a fetoscope or a canard horn. It's outrageous, actually, because those technologies, and there are technologies as well, um, albeit um, analog technologies, those totally benign, 100% safe analog technologies require skill. They require sensitivity. And what you're hearing in those cases are, it is actually the sound of your baby's heartbeat, whereas an ultrasound machine or a Doppler um, it's a it's a synthesized version of it. So you're not. It's an echo, I mean, right? all, it's an echo. There's all sorts of interesting aspects to it. Um, but not to mention thing, the. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, not to yeah. mention the the studies that link 
miscarriage to ultrasound, which we're not going to get into now because we don't have time, but, um, and that the same ultrasound technology is used to break up tumorous cells, um, in, in testicular cancer and beyond. I mean, there's so, if you're new to this concept and this is the first time that anyone has ever entered this into your brain, that perhaps, uh, there's more to ultrasound than what you've been told, please go listen to our episode on this. We have a whole hour, hour and a half episode from first season called Unpacking Ultrasound Technology, where Yolanda gets way more into the studies and, and more of the, the philosophy of this and the science of it. Because um, there's a lot here. There's a lot. Yeah, I, I, I won't talk too much more, but yes, exactly. I mean, there, ultrasound correlates with so many issues and we hear all the time too from people, well, you know, I had 17 ultrasounds and my kid's fine. And yeah, our kids are fine. But then also our kids aren't fine. Right. Right. There what are is fine? Of, I mean, what is fine? It's really interesting to look at the history of ultrasound and to also look at, you know, how so many more children um, in the past, you know, 30 years are being diagnosed with behavioral issues and learning difficulties and all kinds of problems that, again, in these animal studies correlate to ultrasound. And, you know, one of the, one of the very complicating issues in, in our, in, in all of contemporary life is that, uh, there are so many, we, we are always subjected to as human beings in, in, in 2019. So there's, there's such a burden of, of toxicity that we all absorb all the time. And so I often hear from people, well, you know, just being in the sun is like a huge amount of radiation. Well, yes, just driving your car, we're breathing in pollution. So therefore, right. I'm going to make the choice in my pregnancies with my babies to reduce that burden as much as possible. And I think ultrasound to my mind is, you know, I've been reading about it for 20 years. I just can't, I think it's, I, I do think that in our lifetime, ultrasound will blow up as a medical, um, a massive medical error. Really. Yeah. I mean, it already um, is to our mind. It is to our mind. And, so you know, more and more, in, interestingly, there are, you know, jurisdictions, there are countries that are mm -hmm. increasingly putting out, you know, warnings against, you know, unnecessary, like, you know, attempting to kind of pull back. On well, already, I mean, in the States, the FDA, the CDC, you can right. go on their websites, which of course we've done. And mm -hmm. it outright says on government websites says this should not be used routinely. This should only be Definitely. used in high risk situations, mm -hmm. which of course, what is high risk, blah, blah, blah. But even, you know, even these um, governing bodies are saying, yeah. you know, Oh, definitely. So, I mean, um, the, 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 the economics of the issue are right. fascinating too. Like follow element. the money. It's yeah. a whole other element. Anyway, it's, so it's, if it's this interests novel. you, which it should, uh, go <laughs> listen to our episode and, you know, question this, study this, all of the research that Yolanda has done is all available to the public. So you can make your own conclusions by the same studies and, um, and we, we cite some of those in the, in the episode, which is free. And then her book and the course, um, of course, have all of, all of the studies laid out. So yes, very interesting topic. <laughs> Let's get into our last uh, topic of this episode, which is RH factor slash the Rogam shot. Um, yeah. Why don't we first, because I know this is such a confusing topic for people. If you could just give a very, 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 you know, digestible overview of what it is. 
Right. So in a nutshell, RH stands for rhesus factor. And uh, this is a protein on the surface of our red blood cells. So the majority, 85% actually of the population, does possess this protein. So they would be said to be RH positive. Mm. Um, 15% of the population does not possess this protein, which is why we're called RH negative. Um, So I'm RH negative. And I first looked into the issue when I was pregnant with my first baby, because if a woman with rhesus negative blood becomes pregnant by a man with RH positive blood, and the mother and baby's blood systems somehow end up intermingling, so mixing, the woman's body may develop antibodies against RH positive blood, which could then affect the health of a future baby in a variety of ways. So if, for example, you're pregnant with your first baby, you know you're RH negative, you know your partner is RH positive, even if there were to be a mixing of your blood system with your baby's blood system. Which, how does that, that happen? Be... How does that even happen? Right. So. Or sorry, you that... can finish that thought if you want, but make sure you then answer that because I don't understand that. Well, I, I, I will get into that, but, but, but um, sensitization um, is, is basically what happens when the blood systems mix. So um, it's the, this is the development of antibodies. And those, the development, if, if you develop antibodies, if, if you become sensitized, um, this will prompt your body to remove or destroy what it sees as an invasion um, of your body. Um, so in the 50s and 60s, a blood product called and, and this has caused a lot of issues in, in the past. Um, so there were a lot of babies who died, I think primarily around the turn of the century. So that actually, this is a subject that I, I would love to dig much more into. I have some knowledge, but not as much as I'd like, um, because the, the demographics of this are fascinating. So I think it was really around the turn of the century that this, 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 the, the RH factor was really recognized as a problem. Um, and babies were dying. So in the 50s and 60s, a blood product called immune globulin or anti-D was developed. So anti-D goes by several different pharmaceutical names, including Rogam and Winro. Those are the main two. Um, And basically what anti-D does is it stops the, it's, um, it, 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 it stops the woman's body from recognizing the foreign antigen. Um, i.e. her baby's blood, and it protects the next baby from being attacked by her body. And this sounds like a really great thing, um, and it, 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 it was in, 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 in many ways, uh, but there are also risks associated with anti-D, and those risks are rarely, if ever, discussed within the obstetric system. So I think, again, this is one of those topics where most doctors probably don't even realize or or maybe not even, not that they don't care, but it's it's just not a topic that most obstetricians are really well versed in, like what the risks of anti-D might be because it was created and it fixed the problem. And it's like, it's just, it's, that's it now. It's just a standard. What we do. Yeah. It's just what we do. Right. Um, so if you read the package insert on a, a package of Rogam or Winrow, um, you're going to discover something along the lines of, you know, the pharmaceutical company and the manufacturer, this blah, 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 uh, stating that this product, um, that using this product implies an acceptance of the possibility that you might contract a hitherto unknown, unknown blood-borne illness. So 
what anti-D is, is it's a pooled blood product. So that means that um, it's made from the blood of many, many different people all mixed together, right? So just off the bat, right. Yeah, so I personally- synthetic version or literally? Oh no, it's literally other people's blood mixed up, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's processed, it's filtered. Yeah. Um, So, you know, um, just for me personally, I don't love the idea of having other people's blood injected into my body. Um, And furthermore, it contains certain preservatives and adjuvants that, you know, might pose some risks. So, you know, and this can affect the immune system overall, right? Um, So, Interestingly, and I again, I haven't really, really dug profoundly into this aspect of it, but my understanding is that the safety of anti-D was tested way back when on 176 males and two females. So that's like apparently, from what I've read, that's kind of the main um, uh, uh, research that was done on the safety of, of anti-D. So not a heck of a lot of you know, real proof that it's totally safe. Um, So there's little evidence that it doesn't cause harm. Um, But there's also little evidence that it really does cause harm too. So it's really one of those things that, you know, it's a tough one because um, rhesus disease in babies can be very, very serious again. So similarly to the GBS issue, I don't want to downplay the risks of, um, you know, what can happen to a baby if uh, a mother has become sensitized and her body creates antibodies to try to, you know, eliminate that intrusion, right? What our body reads as an intrusion. Um, so it's important really to understand that uh, the, the, you were asking before about the maternal infant blood systems mixing. So that whole concept is... I think perhaps, again, not what we tend to think that it is. So um, currently in North America, in Canada, pregnant women who are RH negative are generally told that you know they have to receive an anti-D shot, Rogam, Winro, at 28 weeks gestation, okay? And so, and this is, a, again, it's across the board. Every woman in Canada, oh, you're RH negative, you just get a shot at 28 weeks. Like, don't yeah, even think about States. it. It's, it's yeah. fine. Same in the States, right? And the ostensible reason for this is to mitigate the risk that the maternal infant blood systems might mix at some point during the pregnancy, thus causing the mother's body to become sensitized. And that particular baby would be, a, would be fine, but it's the baby that would be gestated next that would have a problem. So how do they become um, sensitized? Okay, so that's the thing, right? Um, we don't really understand the risks of NID for the baby. We've already talked about that. But there's no reason for women to believe that their blood systems would mix during pregnancy unless, unless they've experienced a major traumatic incident involving blunt force trauma to their abdomens. So during pregnancy, our bodies are designed to conceive and gestate our babies while keeping our blood systems completely separate from the babies. Like there's no... it's, it's as if it was designed to work. <laughs> it's as if it were designed to work. So it's not like, oh, gee, you're pregnant, so therefore everything is just kind of a mess right. in there. Like, no, pregnancy is very, very particular. So this kind of goes back to the history of um, of the RH factor, which I find so interesting. Like, 
how did we get to a point where 15% of the population still is Rh negative? What happened in you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago that not everyone with Rh negative blood was killed off? Does that, you know, do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm totally not a statistician. I have really no math skills at all. But it just doesn't seem right to me that human beings have been able to survive thus far and maintain this you know, small but existing population of people with Rh negative blood types, right? So, you know, again, I don't want to downplay the risks of sensitization. It's real, can cause major problems for subsequent babies. Question. Mm. Could you connect the dots for me of how it would potentially harm the subsequent children? What, what does that actually look like? Right. Okay. So that's actually important as well because there can be a really enormous range of effects. So if a woman, so, okay. So first of all, if a woman becomes sensitized, that doesn't necessarily mean that her baby will have a problem. Also, whether or not, so, (laughs) I'm, it's a very complicated issue. I'm yeah. sort of backpedaling here, but um, your baby will only, could only possibly have a problem as if your baby has a different blood type from you. Because again, when, you're, when your body produces antibodies, it's going gonna, it's gonna to try to uh, reject the different blood, right? So for a lot of women, um, they've partnered with men who are RH positive, However, some men are heterozygous, have a heterozygous genotype. And what that means is that they, their bodies carry an allele for Rh negative as well. So that would depend on their parents. So for example, my husband is Rh positive. However, his mother is Rh negative. So he is heterozygous. Hetero means different. So he actually carries, his blood carries the allele for Rh negative. So there's a possibility that I could be carrying a baby that is also Rh negative like I am. Mm -hmm. And in that case, there's no risk at all. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why it makes no sense to get to inject women with with anti-D at 28 weeks because we don't actually know for most of those women, many women, we don't know. Uh, whether or not they might actually be carrying a baby who has the same blood type as they do. And in that case, there's no risk at all. Could we not get the Rogam upon experiencing blunt trauma to the abdomen? Exactly. And that would make a heck of a lot more sense, wouldn't it? And, you know, the, 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 one of the things that makes this so complicated is that there are no guarantees at all. So, there are no there there is a minute chance a small chance that there could be some kind of reason why the blood might inter- intermingle in the absence of an accident or a trauma but it's very very unlikely and the other thing that makes this issue so complicated is that every single choice is risk right there is there is risk to this to this woman's baby or to her you know second third subsequent babies no matter what choice she makes. So I have made the choice not to receive Rogam. One of the biggest um, um, factors for blood mixing is the birth process. Okay, so 
during pregnancy, it's unlikely unless you're in a car accident or, you know, uh, there's a, you know, something terrible happens. It's very unlikely that the blood will mix. But during the birth process, it's much, much more likely that your blood will mix. But I want to go back to what I said earlier about it's just not making sense to me that 15% of the population with, that we sustain this number, that somehow, despite the fact that Rogam was, Rogam, Winro, Anti-D was only developed in the 50s and 60s, how did we get this far? How have humans survived thus far? And what I think it is, and really there's no real evidence at all to, to back this up. Like I don't, I'm just, this is all just, you know, conjecture. Um, and actually, if you really want to learn about this, um, it, midwife Sarah Wickham is the person to read. She has written an incredible book about all of this stuff. So a lot of what I'm saying is, is, is her work um, kind of um, regurgitated. But um, my suspicion, my strong suspicion is that the RH factor emerged as this very, very dangerous issue at around the same time that obstetrics was becoming industrialized. And babies started to die, uh, you know, evidently, and women were having, you know, these large families. And you were asking too before, what, what is the effect of rhesus disease on babies? So it can be, um, it, there's a range. Your first baby will never be affected. But if you are sensitized, and it turns out that your body does readily create these antibodies to reject this foreign, you know, invader, then the the effects tend to um, become exacerbated with each baby. So your second baby might just have like some jaundice and otherwise might be okay. Your third baby uh, might have more severe jaundice and maybe anemic. But this um, is only after sensitization has happened? Right. This this is in the case of sensitization and antibodies being created. Which is but already I'm, like crazy rare then for sensitization to happen, right? It's not crazy rare for sensitization to happen oh, um, because when, blood, blood when blood, blood mixes. Right. Okay. It's not crazy rare. But I think, in my opinion, it's not crazy rare because of industrial birth. I think it's crazy rare for sensitization to happen in the context of undisturbed physiological birth. Because as we discussed, during pregnancy, our, our blood systems are designed to remain separate. I think that is the case for birth as well. I think our blood systems are designed to remain separate at birth as well. And I think it's industrial birth practices that create that high probability of sensitization. And it's things like immediate cord clamping, because what happens when you immediately clamp the cord as soon as the baby is born is that that cord is pulsing, pulsing, pulsing blood, um, the baby's blood system. You clamp the cord and there's like a, as like when you kink a hose that's mm-hmm. on full blast, there's a pushback mm-hmm. and you've got, you know, blood flowing into the mother's body. So Maybe I think that's a really flowing into mom's Right, body. exactly. Yeah. So I think that's one of the main things. Um, and more and more, you know, I've been talking about this and reading about this for 20 years. And it's, this is my experience too. I have chosen myself not to receive Rogam. And I have several babies now who are RH positive. I have some RH negative babies too because my husband is heterozygous, as I mentioned. Um, and for <laughs> this is very complicated. So for for a long time, I thought I was not sensitized. 
Um, and I don't think I was sensitized. Um, but I've had miscarriages. I had an abortion. Those are also um, experiences that can cause mm-hmm. some issues in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I don't think my birth processes c- caused any sensitization. A few years ago, I was actually tested. So you can actually you you can test for antibodies, and apparently, I do have antibodies. So apparently, I am sensitized. I still went on to have babies without Rogam, and my babies have shown no evidence of having any issues. So again, this it's very complicated. There is absolutely risk. I would never, ever, ever, like I have to make this very, very clear, suggest that a woman not take Rogam postpartum. I personally don't think it's a good idea during pregnancy because I really yeah. don't think there's any reason for it. And again, in Europe, it's not offered as a standard. Well, I don't um, even, why would a pregnant pregnancy? woman get it if you can what? get it postpartum? Exactly. Um, it just, it, well, it, you know, again, it's, 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 it's prophylactic. Right. In, it's, it's prophylactic, prophylactic no matter what, but in pregnancy, it's like just weirdly unnecessarily prophylactic. And the reason that the, 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 the 28 baby. it's for the first baby. Well, well, yeah, for the first baby, it makes no sense. Well, no, I mean, because you're still protecting subsequent babies. That's, that's the rationale anyway. But at 28 weeks, it actually stays in your system for 12 weeks. So that's why it's given at 28 weeks. Because it's supposed to be this kind of blanket protection in the event that, you know, like pregnant women are not constantly throwing themselves downstairs. Like it just doesn't really compute with, with, with the experience of, of pregnancy or the realities of, of the physiology of pregnancy. Anyway, I feel like I've gone on and on. And it, 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 it's, it's such a, such a complex issue. But, but no, what I wanted to say was that there's this idea that if you are that, okay, there's this idea that birth inherently causes sensitization. I don't think that's true. And we know that that's not true because more and more women are choosing not to take it. Lots of women who free birth, who have free pregnancies and who are RH negative are making the choice to abstain. Okay. And I know many women personally, again, this is all anecdotal, but I know many women personally who do not take Rogam, who are RH negative, who do have RH, RH positive partners and whose babies are fine. So that idea is incorrect um, that, that every RH negative woman is going to become sensitized and have, have, uh, and have issues. Then also the idea that sensitization automatically means that your baby's going to be sick mm-hmm. is also not true because I know lots of women who are sensitized, whose bodies do register antibodies like mine. Self-included, yeah. And who have healthy babies. So what, what, what's really going on is that, again, there's always risk no matter what. And it's a question of um, you know, gathering the information that's going to allow you to really make a truly informed choice around all of this um, and to really be able to weigh those risks properly. Um, so again, you know, I, I completely, this is not the same sort of issue as the GBS test. It's not the same sort of issue as a lot of other things because I completely understand why women would choose to receive the Rogam postpartum. I, I totally understand that. Um, but I think don't, it's- pres- Why don't you get it? Like what's the- it's it I guess it kind of just seems like why not get it? Yeah, I I <laughs> I don't know. I've I guess for me at this point, you know, I'm having my eighth baby and it's sort of like, well, so far, so good. Like I just don't 
I think I'm okay. And that does not make sense. I just want to really like <laughs> acknowledge that. <laughs> you know? Like it really doesn't make sense. And it's not, uh, it is purely intuitive. Um, but that's really what free birth is all about too, right? Is that I am an adult and I, I'm fine with the risk that I've chosen. And I, I, I'm also very aware that receiving this blood product that, you know, is from a whole bunch of strangers bodies that involves risk as well. And I prefer the risk I've chosen. Mm -hmm. I think that you know, the risk is unavoidable and this is a risk that I can live with. Um, and, and I really, I mean, I, I am having my eighth baby. So I, yeah. Cause a lot of, a lot, healthy. Of, you know, yeah, lucky. a lot of, women, I'm just lucky. That's it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and like what you just pointed to that it is not truthful that if you don't get Rogam, you will have stillborns. You know, that's the story out there is that, and that's what women are coming to me saying that their doctor has said, if we don't give you this shot with this pregnancy, then it is extremely likely that you will, you will kill any subsequent children. Yeah. No, I mean, and not to dismiss that. Yes. There stillbirth is one of the possible outcomes of rhesus disease, but again, it's more likely to be a cumulative effect. And I, I'm not suggesting at all, like, I don't want to risk that with my kids, but no, let me go back to your question a little bit too, because it, why don't I take it? I, I didn't initially, I refused Rogam initially because of my theory that physiological birth is protective. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my initial reason. And I think that's very valid. I really do. And that's a, that's a, a choice that a lot of women make. But when I then discovered that apparently I have been sensitized at that point. It's like, well, it doesn't make any difference anyway, because you know I'm already sensitized and yet I keep having healthy babies. So in that, in that regard, I am just lucky, I guess, because again, it is, it can be a very serious issue. So I don't, yeah, I don't want to downplay that. But yeah, no, I mean, there's so much, so much that goes into this and, um, and yeah, I mean, we even go much more in depth, uh, in in the course and and in my upcoming book, um, but I find that the philosophy behind these ways that we've um, you know the 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 just the just how we pres- how we navigate these choices in the contemporary world really fascinating too. So that's a lot of what my book is about as well. So mm-hmm. I really try to touch on you know, the facts, um, you know, interesting research that we may not, you know, that, that might not be um, uh, uh, accessible elsewhere. Although again, Sarah Wickham is the person to, to read for RH stuff. And I, I, re- I reference her a lot in my book, but also why do we make the choices that we do? What goes into, um, yeah, I mean, your question is, is important. Um, so yeah. Uh, and, and this was not an easy choice for me early on when I was for like, I've been having babies for 20 years now. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it just feels like all, all this stuff, just, it's not really stuff I think about in my own pregnancies anymore, but, um, these are very, very significant decisions, especially when you're starting your mothering journey. And especially for women who, um, you know, who, who, who know that they want to have, you know, several children, uh-huh. um, you know, it's not really a big deal if you just want to have one or two two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it, not as, as much of a, a, a big deal, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Okay. 
Well, like you said, you go way more into this in your book and in our course. And um, let's wrap up here with, if you could just tell people how they can find you and how they can follow you on Instagram and uh, keep in touch with you around your upcoming book, because obviously they're going to want to go buy it now. Yay. <laughs> uh, I'm excited. Um, yay. Thank you. This was so much fun. Um, and we're going to do that other, that other podcast soon, right? About oh, and yeah, we're going to do the other one. <laughs> and then also, um, we're, we're going to be releasing all these mini courses, like you referenced earlier in the mm. podcast about mm. this stuff. So, um, we're hoping it'll be at some point this year where you can just, uh, buy a little mini course on RH, or you can buy a little mini course on, on all four of these things. Um, to dive a little deeper in. So stay tuned. And if you aren't already on our mailing list at freebirthsociety.com, obviously you should be. Um, and then what is your Instagram handle for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, at Bauhaus wife. So that's at B-A-U-H-A-U-S-W-I-F-E. Um, and you can join my book mailing list if you go to freebirth.ca. That's my little... A little website. Oh, and I do uh, consults with uh, women all over the world um, on birth. So if you want a one-on-one, I'm uh, I have a couple of spaces open for for new clients. Awesome. So yeah. Cool. You Thank me. you so much. I appreciate your perspective because, as we know, so many women have never heard of alternative perspectives and the you know, I've been doing these Q and A's on Instagram lately and every single time I do it, somebody or many, many people, um, ask, um, are there other options besides getting the Rogam shot? And it's a big one because, um, it is like you, like you already know, it is just assumed that women will get the GBS test. They will take the glucose drink. They will, uh, get their Rogam shot. If they're RH negative, um, they will get their required, you know, quote unquote ultrasounds. And, and so, you know, here we are saying, well, we didn't do any of those things and uh, there are other options. <laughs> Here we are. Awesome. Yep. Thank All you, right. babe. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> Bye. That's it for today, everyone. Join us next week for another episode of the Free Birth Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And remember, your body, your choice. Lots of love.